Okay, so this is the first clinic I've done without other musicians. For me, jazz is all about communication. It's all about how you interact with the other people around you, about how you're responding to them. So it's really interesting to do a clinic without having other musicians up here <laughs> to demonstrate some of those concepts. So some of the things that I could talk about obviously would be the mechanics of music, the, the stuff that makes up uh, our vocabulary or what may be going through our fingers or through our minds. So, but before I do that, I want to find out who's in the audience. How many people are musicians? Wow, okay, okay. How many people are improvisers? Wow, how about jazz specifically? Okay, interesting, okay. I see where we're coming from now. Let's start, what, how about a question about anything? Any direction you want me to go? It can, it can be about the business, it can be about harmony, rhythm, melody, anything. What can you say to sell me on this instrument you have? On this instrument? I understand it's a Venetian Yamaha. <laughs> <laughs> You work for a Yamaha, right? <laughs> no, I, this, is, this is an incredible instrument. Um, this is just the prototype, so there's still some things that they're working on to, to finish it up. But the tone, I think, is really lush. And what can I say? I guess I should play something. That's the best way. <laughs> OK, improvising here. Let's see. <laughs> I may or may not play a song. I don't know. Let's see.
found my way into uh, Duke Ellington's, one of my favorite Duke Ellington composition. That's called A Single Petal of a Rose. That, to me, that's the best way to answer that question. <laughs> yeah, right. right. It's a great instrument, though. I think, I think it's uh, extremely lyrical. And uh, uh, I, I like that when I'm playing really soft, the, the, the depth of the instrument. Sometimes with uh, the bars on other instruments, you play really soft, and you just get just the surface of the tone. But I feel like this is really colorful. And I love to play soft, so <laughs> that's really, really important for me. So that's the best way I can answer that one for you. Okay, you, got, you, got, you have to feed me, you have to feed me. Anything, feed me. Talk about the business. Talk about the business, wow, holy cow. <laughs> what about the business? You know, the, the best advice I can, I can give in terms of business is that it's constantly changing and one of the best skills that you, you have to have is an ability to see what's coming next, right? A heightened sense of perception is extremely important in business, but also in music. So the way things happened for me, I, I uh, moved to New York City in 92. I went to Manhattan School of Music. And while I was here, there was, a, I think at that time, it's kind of the tail end of the Young Lion movement. It's still the, the Christian McBride was, was big, and Josh Redman was still big, and he still is now. <laughs> Roy Hargrove and those guys. So I was in school and we all were kind of like, yeah, we want to get big record deals and blah, blah, blah. And we were all working towards that. Obviously, the scene is a little bit different now. But for me, that was something that was current. So we, we all kind of had that in the back of our minds. We want to get our concepts together. So we were constantly writing music and focused on a, a more industry type approach. So I, uh, in addition to staying in the four walls, behind the four walls practicing, I made sure that I went out into the city and met people always. I was at the, at the jam sessions, not playing because the vibes are a bit much to carry around everywhere you're going. But I would go just to hang and hear what other people were dealing with. Um, but I think still the most important thing was that I was working on a concept while I was in school. Before I went to college, I was always writing music and trying to figure out what music meant for me and really trying to take ownership of music. And then I utilized my time in school to refine that concept so, so that by the time I got out of school, it seemed like, oh, okay, you come, you're coming out of nowhere. But at that point, you've been playing music 20 years or something like that, working on something. So I, I felt that when I came out, I was lucky because I spent the time and I was very focused on creating, I don't want to call it a product, but really finding a way to articulate what my voice is. So if my first record, there, there's not a single standard on it at all. And I was very clear that I don't want to have people see me that way. Because obviously everyone wanted me to be the next Milt Jackson and Lionel Hampton and, and that type of thing. <laughs> and I just felt like business-wise that wasn't the right way to go. So for me, it was, a, it, was, it was that there was a scene at the time, which is very different now. I was able to play with, with Wynton Marcellus while I was in college. I played with Max Roach while I was in college. And the year that I signed my record deal, I toured with Charlie Hunter, with Cassandra Wilson, with all these a, a huge variety of people. But how do you get to the point where you can do that and gain that type of street credibility? It's about the practice room. It's really about having a concept. And the vibes in, in a, 
it's a, it's, a, it's a great first question for someone like me because I really downplay the vibraphone itself um, because I think it's just, it's beautiful. I like the instrument, but I love music. If I weren't playing the vibes, I'd be a musician playing something else. So I, I always felt that there weren't a lot of vibraphone gigs in the world. There weren't a lot of situations where someone's like, yeah, I, I want a vibraphone, so I'm gonna call this guy. I, most of the gigs that I felt like I've gotten called for and that I still get called for is for my voice not necessarily a vibraphone. For example, if I can't make the gig, they might get a trumpet player or something. So that type of separation from the instrument I thought was also really important and part of the overall concept. I know I'm digressing from the business thing. <laughs> so anyway, back to the business. So I, I signed the, a, a record deal, blah, blah, blah. How do you do that? It's from street credibility, at least at the time. I was playing the Vanguard with Buster Williams, Jerry Allen, and Lenny White. I mean, that's an incredible band. So. <laughs> Uh, some people from Blue Note came down and, and heard me there, and then the conversation got going from that point. But an, another thing about business, once I got there, I, I always recognize that a record company is, is not going to make your career. And I think a lot of people have that as a misconception, that if you get a big record contract, everything's going to be okay. Basically, a record company is just a bank. It's an, a lending institution. They give you the money to make the record in exchange for owning the masters for a certain period of time. And that's, that's about it. I mean, they have some people who help get you into some marketing uh, sectors that you may not be able to do on your own. But it's really up to you to have a voice, to have a concept, and to really get your hustle on when you first get that opportunity. For example, I turned down a bunch of gigs, too. Like, my first record, I recorded right after I graduated, maybe a month after I graduated. I didn't release it for like a year and a half because I took the gig with Joe Henderson. And I knew that if you put a record out into the market and you're not in the market to support it, it's, gonna, it's going to flop. People will see it in a magazine, they'll be curious, maybe they'll buy it, but they want to see you perform live. So I said, let's not release the record. Let's hold it. Let me do this because I can't pass out an opportunity to work with someone like Joe Henderson. So after uh, I, the gig with Joe, Hendrick, Joe Henderson kind of went away, <laughs> uh, I said, okay, let's do it now. And then I stopped taking gigs with other people. And, and my income, yeah, I think I was with Jazz at Lincoln Center for a while, for a couple of years, and I was conducting with them, and I was making really good money, but I knew, I was like, you know what? If I stay here, I'm never gonna get to pursue my own vision, my own dream, and I, I quit. And that next year, I made like a third in terms of income, but it was worth the sacrifice. <laughs> and again, I knew that I couldn't do that and be successful as a leader. And some people you've seen, I won't name any, specific musicians, but they get a record deal, they get momentum, and then they take a gig with someone else, and you never really, they never get a chance to build their presence in the market. You, you know, <laughs> I read, I read a, a great book a couple of months ago by Herman Hess called The Glass Bead Game. Uh, actually, it was more like a year ago. But one of the concepts in that book is there's this society of, of great scholars they basically go in and they take these kids who are the smartest kids out of the classroom when they're five, six years old, and they take them to the secret society. They're not allowed to be married. They, they don't associate with the outside world. Their entire life is dedicated to scholarship, studying, studying, studying. And one of the most fascinating things about the principles of this society is that they're not allowed to be creative. They're actually not allowed to, to write poetry, anything that we would call creative, because they feel, feel that creativity can be a big distraction from actually learning the craft, the science of whatever it is you're studying. 
And I find that to be very, very true. I, I feel that coming out of college, I had a, a really, really strong, intense creative phase. I, I wrote uh, The Grand Unification Theory. That's a, 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 an hour and a half of music. Took me a year to write that for a nine-piece ensemble. Right after that, I wrote The Gardener Meditations. That's about, a, again, about an hour and a half long suite <laughs> uh, for nine musicians. I just finished another piece called Portraits of the Promise. Again, it's a nine-piece ensemble, totally different ensemble. That's about an hour and a half of music. And each of these takes me about a year of writing. So creatively, to sit down every day and write, 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 I, found, I find that at this point, if I keep doing that, it's difficult for me to control the way I want to improve. Of course you improve just by being out and having the experience to meet people, just the experience to be on stage, on stage playing. But for me right now, it's all about the fundamentals. I'm back, for example, I don't practice the vibes anymore. I, I'd say, on a, like before I do my next record, I'll take, you know, I'll set them up and hit them good to get my hands back in shape. But for the most part, I practice at the piano. Because it, there's three basic uh, elements of music. There's rhythm, there's harmony, and there's melody. Which, melody, of course, you can practice on any instrument. The rhythm, I feel I was always fairly strong at that, so like Jeff said earlier, you have to identify what your strengths and weaknesses are. So I don't focus that much on rhythm because I spent a lot of time doing that. Harmony, I felt like, you know, I'm, I'm, I really need to develop my sense of harmony. So at this point, I'm at the piano every day, hours and hours and hours studying harmony. That's it. <laughs> so that's where I am. It's really fundamental, basic stuff. It's like a whole shift, a paradigm shift happened for me in a epiphanal moment when I realized that music is the science of sound. And how do we first interact with sound? It's obviously through our ears. It's not through your mind, what you think, and it's not even about the ideas. First of all, you have to be able to hear what's going on around you <laughs> by ear, and then once you have that in your head, you can interpret and then know how to respond. So I'm changing my whole perspective, and what I have to be able to do is hear everything that's going on around me. First, understand what it is, then I can react to it. So are you starting, your emphasis is more harmonically related now because of, of where you're at? Mm -hmm. okay. I, can, I can actually show you. Uh, uh, for example, I've been studying dominant chords <laughs> for the past couple of months, just dominant chords, that's it. And I, I've, I found that you can kind of chop it up. If, if we think of music, this is a controversial thing to say, but I actually don't think that Western harmony is infinite in the way that we use it. I think it is actually in some way finite. There are obviously lots of variations and clusters you can come up with, but the basic way that harmony is used in jazz is, I think, finite. So I started coming up with a system and trying to figure out how I can chop these things up into categories. And I found we have a lot of musicians. So and I'm not a pianist, and I'm playing piano a thousand times better than I could six months ago from practicing, but I'm not a pianist at all. I have terrible technique. But I said, okay, let me start with dominance. So what are the most important notes in defining a dominant? The third and the seventh and the root. Okay, so I said, okay, let me start with that. So we have one, three, and dominant seven in the left hand. And then I found that, okay, there are triads that you can put on top of this. The most basic one, if I'm in the key of C, so I have C, E, and B flat in my left hand. The most obvious triad that would go on top of that would be a C triad, and it gives you a very basic dominant sound. Right, no matter what inversion. Right? 
So then I said, okay, I'm gonna see how many major triads work against this dominant sound. So C obviously works. So I said, well, let me see, does D flat work? Up a half step. So this is a D flat triad in my right hand against one, three, dominant seven in the key of C on my left. Sounds like this. To my ear, there's something about that that's very ambiguous and I'm not quite sure if it works. It doesn't quite sound like a dominant. It's kind of hinting at some other things. So I said, okay, that's, I'm gonna skip that one. I'm gonna say, so far I have C. Then I try the D triad. I said, man, I've heard that before. I've heard that a lot in jazz, interesting. So a D triad over C7. So I'm writing, I said, okay, a C triad works, a D triad works. And I go up to E flat. Oh yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> You've heard that, okay? Then I go up to an E triad. That's another one of those kind of ambiguous, I'm not sure if it's a dominant, it's just kind of... It kind of sounds like another type of chord, so I say, okay, the E doesn't work. Then I go up to an F triad. Same thing, it kind of sounds like a sus chord, it doesn't really sound like a dominant, so I say the F doesn't work. Then I go up to F sharp, F sharp over C7, and I get... That I've heard a bunch, right? <laughs> How many times have we heard that in music? sharp over C7, right? Then I said G. No, G doesn't work. I said A flat. Oh, that's just sexy. Of course that works. Right? And then the last one that works is an A triad. So basically, I found that there are really only six major triads that work over a dominant. So it's, it's very finite. It's not an infinite, infinite thing. And the, so the, the general rule that I came up with, is, if any of you guys want to practice this, is that for a dominant, you don't want to have the fourth and you don't want to have the major seven. So any triad that doesn't have a fourth and a major seven is going to work. Basically, for what we're doing right now uh, in the key of C, a C triad works, a D triad works, a E flat triad works, F sharp, A flat, and A. So there's only six choices. So at, that, at, at this point, I start working on can I hear the difference between these sounds? Now that I know there's six, it's not ear training like, oh, can you hear a sharp 11 in it? Can you hear that this note is in it? No, it's can I hear the difference between these six? All right, so I'm gonna test you on this. <laughs> so first we're gonna start, this is the C over C7. So how do I learn to hear it? I take a notebook and I write down, I describe what that sound is for me, right? That's not an ugly sound. Right? It's, a, it's very clearly a dominant, it's very stable. <coughs> right? So I, I kind of have that one in my ear now. So I go to the next one, which would be D over C7. How do you describe this sound? It's kind of bright, yes. It's weak. You said weak? I think it's weak. Okay. Sounds, it sounds like it wants to resolve into another chord. Okay, so it's bright, sounds like it kind of wants to resolve. So it's very different than the first one, all right? So, so far we have a C and we have a D. So I'm gonna play one of them and I want you to tell me which one it is. Just call it out, all right. So we're dealing with two right now. Just that's enough. You can hear the difference between the two of those. That's a great start. Now we'll add the third one. This will be E flat over C seven. 
all right? It sounds like this. It's totally different. It's a whole other world, right? How do you describe this? Like a mood? I try not to use musical terms, though. It's, it's better to use personality types and thing, things outside of music. Dark? Okay. Gritty. Yeah, it's real gritty, right? It's like a... About to, you know, you're about to get to it, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's totally different than it's totally different than the D over C because that doesn't feel that way. That's a more of a it makes me want to smile. It's like right? Uh so Mike, come on up. Mike or Lalo, somebody come up. Mike. So again, and and why why would I do all of this? Because I'm not I'm not interested in being a vibraphonist. That's, that's nice, I play the vibes, but I wanna be a musician. And music is the science of organized sound. So, like I said, first and foremost, I have to be able to hear what's going on. So if I'm here, I have to be able to hear what note Mike plays, whatever note, play a note, step on the pedal, it doesn't matter. which one I like for that. Well, that way. So against, if I play a root, no matter what note he plays, if I were a pianist, <laughs> right, I could harmonize with what he's doing. Now, when I'm at the vibraphone, how does this, what does this mean to me as a musician? This means when I'm playing now, and Aaron is playing piano with me, when he actually plays a voicing, now I actually can hear what notes he's dealing with, where he's coming from. I hear the emotion, whereas often in jazz, when, in jazz education, it's all about what you can put out. You're taking your solo and you're doing all of your stuff. But is it directly related to what's being played here? Is it directly related to what's going on in the bass? Is it rhythmically directly related to what's going on to drums? Actually, I'd say probably 95% of the time that I hear out here, no, it's not. Right? And people can play great. But if you're interested in playing, you got to understand that's only one part of music. Playing is overrated. Improvisation, I think, is overrated. It's not the real beauty of music. It's a part of music, but it's, we go to school and that's all we want to do is learn how to play. But what about learning music? What about learning harmony? What about learning love? What about learning to tell a story? It's not just, oh, I've been shedding there's nothing like, I love, I love Aaron so much. He's an amazing musician, incredible ears, beautiful touch. And you can tell, the first time I heard this guy play, it's just, you could tell he's such a, a warm person before you even talk to him, just based on how well he listens to other people and the sensitivity, the touch, the respect that he has for other people. It's music, man. It's, oh, greatest scientist in all the world. But create creativity. If you're, if, if you're in your, in my opinion, if you're at home and you're practicing your creative stuff, I think you're wasting your time. Like, like Jeff said, it's when we're all different. I'll, I'll, that's where I am with harmony. Now, again, you, you can put sus chords, augmented chords. There's all, I counted about 28 different types of dominance that for the most part, I can hear the difference after months and months of working on. If someone came and played any of those 28, I could probably tell you what's in that now. I couldn't have done that six months ago. So it's from chopping it up, saying that it's not infinite, it's actually finite. So rhythmically, you have to have a concept 
that keeps you connected to people as well. So I was saying that you don't want to overemphasize creativity because it's something that's natural. I, I found a, uh, uh, a song that I wrote when I was, I think I must have been in fifth grade or something. I kind of taught myself to read music and everything at the piano. And I was looking through this, this box. This is maybe about, this is when I was writing the grand unification theory. And I looked at it and it was like a little kid and I wrote a piece of music that had four different sections. Changed keys, it did all of this stuff. I didn't know what a minor chord was, I didn't know any of that. So it's something that's kind of in my nature for whatever reason. So it's not that I have to push and try to do that. It's really just being myself and just really letting go. So you study the fundamentals so that you can express. Creativity's overrated too, in my opinion. How many things have you heard that are creative but not good? Just because it's creative doesn't mean it's beautiful, doesn't mean it moves you. I'm more interested in something that's beautiful. So rhythm is, th is in the same category for me. It's directly connected to language. The way I speak, you notice that there's a rhythmic cadence, da 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 when I'm talking, da 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 When someone else talks, it might be, well, maybe a little more choppy. But I don't really speak that way. Right? So if I'm playing with Mike and I say something to Mike, if, just respond to me. If I say boom, bila bulele. Ah, buda, buda la. Yeah, okay. But respond with some syllables. Bidada. But no words, just syllables. Yeah, bida. Ah, bida buda ba. Ah, Somehow it's related, right? If he says something to me with some syllables, say something. Kind of, right? It's like, did I really respond to him? I don't know. Say. That's how some people play, though. They're focused on what they're thinking, <laughs> but it's not directly related to what's going on around them. Now, if he says something to me again, Ah, buda da, Ah, la day. Ah, dida. And you see how the, the the actual phrase comes to an end in a very natural place. That's how good musicians know how to play with one another because we're actually having a conversation. So when I'm at my instrument, a lot of times people think I'm singing. I try not to sing. I can't sing. It's terrible. And if you hear me, I apologize in advance. The main thing that I'm focusing on is that making sure that I'm telling a story. So when I'm at the vibes. It's just I'm talking, I'm giving a dissertation without words. I'm saying, boy, I'm sure glad to be here today. I might laugh and say, I might say, I'm just climbing some shape. It's that I'm going right. Someone else might say because you're thinking, oh, I'm playing this harmony as opposed to actually making a statement. I'm going oh, 
you know what I mean? It's like I'm really trying to talk. So when someone's playing drums with me, I wish there was someone here to play some drums with me, not right now. If I'm playing, if I'm playing, idea keeps going though. <laughs> so there's there's one other element that I'm just going to talk about because there's three elements of music in my opinion. Like I said, there's rhythm, there's melody, and there's harmony. So I've kind of given you my basic, basic concept on harmony. That's a system that I'm working on. It's going to take me probably five years to go through. <laughs> so it's not something I can just show you everything right now, but there's a system of exercises that you go through. I'm working on a book. I'll, it'll be out in probably five years. Or so. <laughs> so rhythm, that's my general approach to rhythm. It's very simplistic. It's just that I'm standing up and I say, boom, be la, fu le do de. Fiddy la, do la, fiddy lady, le do la, si bu wap, spiddy la, bu le do de, pop, shabba do bu do be, you be, you be, you be, I'm just talking. I can go on and on and on, right? Sonny Rollins is a master at that. So melody. Now melody is, great composers throughout history have said that melody is the, the heart and soul of music. But it is also one of the most mysterious areas. Like how do you say what is a good melody? What is a bad melody? It's very, very complicated. So the basic principle that I, I apply in, in teaching and, and thinking about melody is the same concept in harmony and in rhythm, and that is the concept of tension and release. Right? If you have all tension, you drive people crazy. If you have no tension, you put people to sleep. <laughs> right? So let's say we have a basic triad, right? If we're playing F. I think in terms of, well, what are my most stable tones? What are the most clear tones? This is very stable. And by the way, every note in music has a physical gesture. Remember, the D over C goes, the A over C is, right? This, the root, if you play an F triad and you play one, it's this. Watch this. I'm going to do a physical gesture and watch it doesn't match the sound. It's like I'm moving for some strange reason. This sound really is. Can you see that? You can see it in here, right? That's the root. Then you have the third, which is totally different. It sounds like this. Total 
totally different, right? The fifth is totally different. So I try to find first the notes that really define the color itself. So if we're talking triads, obviously that's one, three, and five. Then I try to find maybe three notes. This is something uh, McCoy Tyner uh, uh, d does a lot in his playing. I, I think they call it hexatonics, right? Yeah, where you're taking two triads. This is a similar sort of concept where I find these three notes. And then I look for notes that create tension against this sound. So and it can be any notes, whatever my ear likes. So boy, that note wants to resolve, right? You don't want that let that ring, right? Another one is it's not quite resolved. You want it to go somewhere. And another one could be you're like resolve already, right? So I'll take F, A, C, this is the most simplistic one, and then I'll take G, B flat, and D. So it's what I, I call a melodic tonic, right? Tonic being the stable, the home area, that would be the F triad. The G minor triad would be what I would call a melodic dominant. So what you wanna do is you wanna be able to move between re release, which would be F. It's all very stable, no problem. You do that all night, people are gonna want their money back. <laughs> then you got to be able to move to the dominant, which is a little bit more tension. Then you want to resolve it. And all I, I'm, I'm not using any notes. There's no scale. I don't do scales. I try not to early in terms of making melodies. Too confusing. But all I'm doing is I'm going from a, a calm area, which is the F, and then I'm moving to a dominant area, which in this case is G minor, and then I'm moving back. That's it. So an F triad. This is G minor. Then I'm going to resolve it. Hear all those melodies popping out? It's, if you, it's, I don't even know how you not play a melody if you kind of approach it that way, because you're going from release I mean, uh, tension to release, tension to release. And that's kind of my general concept with melody. Now, that's very basic. It can get much more complicated than that, obviously. You can get into slick ones like, uh, like an F triad and uh, uh, like an E flat sus, which would, be, which would be this. This is the stable one. The tension against it would be. So I can go between. But I'm not playing. It's not playing bebop lines or anything like that. That's I'll never be able to do that like Milt. That's my hero, and that'd be a losing battle for me to chase that down. <laughs> I have a basic understanding of how it works, but I'm looking for my own way of making melodies. So the, again, the whole concept of playing, I'm gonna play my lines. I'm trying to get rid of that. You're asking me earlier about where I am as a musician. That's where I am. I don't want to play any more lines. I hate lines. I hate them. You know what I mean? It's just like, and I, and I do it. I'm guilty of it. I'm immature, and I'm working on that. And it's going to take a lot of time, and it's, it takes a lot of discipline and personal courage to back away from that because it's not about playing anymore. I figure what a line really should be is a fast melody. You should never not, not be playing a melody in music. What are you doing if you're running a line or a scale? What's that have to do with love and communicating to people?
wow, I just went on for like 50 minutes or something. But those are, that's my general approach to those three areas. I hope, I hope it was informative. All right, I hope it was interesting. Thank you for having me. We'll see you soon.